Chapter 32 of The Uncommercial Traveller This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Deborah Brabin, The Uncommercial Traveller, by Charles Dickens. Chapter 32 A Small Star in the East I had been looking yesternight through the famous dance of death, and to-day the grim old woodcuts arose in my mind, with the new significance of a ghastly monotony not to be found in the original. The weird skeleton rattled along the streets before me, and struck fiercely, but it was never at the pains of assuming a disguise. It played on no dulcimer here, was crowned with no flowers, waved no plume, minced in no flowing robe or train, lifted no wine-cup, sat at no feast, cast no dice, counted no gold. It was simply a bare, gaunt, famished skeleton, slaying his way along. The borders of Ratcliffe and Stepney, eastward of London, and giving on the impure river, were the scene of this uncompromising dance of death upon a drizzling November day. A squalid maze of streets, courts, and alleys of miserable houses let out in single rooms. A wilderness of dirt, rags, and hunger. A mud desert, chiefly inhabited by a tribe from whom employment has departed, or to whom it comes but fitfully and rarely. They are not skilled mechanics in any wise, they are but labourers, Dock labourers, waterside labourers, coal porters, ballast heavers, such like hewers of wood and drawers of water. But they have come into existence and they propagate their wretched race. One grisly joke alone, methought, the skeleton seemed to play off here. It had stuck election bills on the walls, which the wind and rain had deteriorated into suitable rags. It had even summed up the state of the pole in chalk on the shutters of one ruined house. It adjured the free and independent starvers to vote for this man and vote for that man, not to plump, as they valued the state of parties and the national prosperity, both of great importance to them, I think, but by returning this man and that man, each naught without the other, to compound a glorious and immortal whole. Surely the skeleton is nowhere more cruelly ironical in the original monkish idea. Pondering in my mind the far-seeing schemes of this man and that man, and of the public blessing called party, for staying the degeneracy, physical and moral, of many thousands, who shall say how many, of the English race, for devising employment useful to the community for those who want but to work and live, for equalising rates, cultivating wastelands, facilitating emigration, and above all things saving and utilising the oncoming generations, and thereby changing ever-growing national weakness into strength, pondering in my mind, I say, these hopeful exertions, I turned down a narrow street to look into a house or two. It was a dark street with a dead wall on one side. Nearly all the outer doors of the houses stood open, I took the first entry and knocked at a parlour door. Might I come in? I might, if I pleased, sir. The woman of the room, Irish, had picked up some long strips of wood about some wharf or barge, and they had just now been thrust into the otherwise empty grate to make two iron pots boil. There was some fish in one, and there were some potatoes in the other. 
the flare of the burning wood enabled me to see a table and a broken chair or so and some old cheap crockery ornaments about the chimney-piece it was not until i had spoken with the woman a few minutes that i saw a horrible brown heap on the floor in a corner which but for previous experience in this dismal wise i might not have suspected to be the bed there was something thrown upon it and i asked what that was "'Tis the poor creature that stays here, sir, and tis very bad she is, and tis very bad she's been this long time, and tis better she'll never be. And tis sleep she does all day, and tis wake she does all night, and tis the lead, sir. The what? The lead, sir. Sure, tis the lead mills. What the women gets took on at eighteen pence a day, sir, when they make supplication early enough, and is lucky and wanted. And tis lead poison she is, sir. "'And some of them gets lead poisoned soon, "'and some of them gets lead poisoned later, "'and some but not many, never. "'And tis all according to the constitution, sir. "'And some constitutions is strong and some is weak, "'and her constitution is lead poisoned, bad as can be, sir. "'And her brain is coming out at her ear, "'and it hurts her dreadful, and that's what it is, "'and never no more and never no less, sir.' "'The sick young woman moaning here, "'the speaker bent over her, took a bandage from her head, and threw open a back door to let in the daylight upon it, from the smallest and most miserable backyard I ever saw. That's what comes from her, sir, being lead poisoned, and it comes from her night and day, the poor sick creature, and the pain of it is dreadful, and God he knows that my husband has walked the streets these four days being a labourer, and is walking them now, and is ready to work and no work for him, and no fire and no food but the bit in the pot. "'and no more than ten shillings in a fortnight, God be good to us. "'And it is poor we are, and dark it is, and cold it is indeed.' "'Knowing that I could compensate myself thereafter for my self-denial, if I saw fit, "'I had resolved that I would give nothing in the course of these visits. "'I did this to try the people. "'I may state at once that my closest observation "'could not detect any indication whatever of an expectation that I would give money.' They were grateful to be talked to about their miserable affairs, and sympathy was plainly a comfort to them. But they neither asked for money in any case, nor showed the least trace of surprise or disappointment or resentment at my giving none. The woman's married daughter had by this time come down from her room on the floor above to join in the conversation. She herself had been to the Leadmills very early that morning to be took on, but had not succeeded. She had four children and her husband, also a waterside labourer, and then out seeking work, seemed in no better cases to finding it than her father. She was English, and by nature of a buxom figure, and cheerful. Both in her poor dress and in her mother's there was an effort to keep up some appearance of neatness. She knew all about the sufferings of the unfortunate invalid, and all about the lead poisoning, and how the symptoms came on and how they grew, having often seen them. The very smell when you stood inside the door of the works was enough to knock you down, she said. Yet she was going back again to get took on. What could she do? Better be ulcerated and paralysed for eighteen pence a day while it lasted than see the children starve. A dark and squalid cupboard in this room, touching the back door and all manner of offence, had been for some time the sleeping place of the sick young woman. But the nights being now wintry, and the blankets and coverlets gone to the leaving shop, she lay all night where she lay all day, and was lying then. The woman of the room, her husband, this most miserable patient, and two others, 
lay on the one brown heap together for warmth. God bless you, sir, and thank you, were the parting words from these people, gratefully spoken, too, with which I left this place. Some streets away I tapped at another parlour door on another ground floor. Looking in I found a man, his wife, and four children, sitting at a washing-stool by way of table, at their dinner of bread and infused tea-leaves. There was a very scanty, cinderous fire in the grate by which they sat, and there was a tent-bedstead in the room with a bed upon it and a coverlet. The man did not rise when I went in, nor during my stay, but civilly inclined his head on my pulling off my hat, and in answer to my inquiry whether I might ask him a question or two, said, "'Certainly.' There being a window at each end of this room, back and front, it might have been ventilated, but it was shut up tight to keep the cold out, and was very sickening. The wife, an intelligent, quick woman, rose and stood at her husband's elbow, and he glanced up at her as if for help. It soon appeared that he was rather deaf. He was a slow, simple fellow of about thirty. What was he by trade? Gentleman asks, what are you by trade, John? I'm a boiler-maker, looking about him with an exceedingly perplexed air, as if for a boiler that had unaccountably vanished. He ain't a mechanic, you understand, sir, the wife put in. He's only a labourer. Are you in work? He looked up at his wife again. Gentleman says, are you in work, John? In work? cried this forlorn boilermaker, staring aghast at his wife, and then working his vision's way very slowly round to me. Lord, no. Ah, oh, he ain't indeed, said the poor woman, shaking her head as she looked at the four children in succession and then at him. Work? said the boilermaker, still seeking that evaporated boiler, first in my countenance, then in the air, and then in the features of his second son at his knee. I wish I was in work. I haven't had more than a day's work to do this three weeks. How have you lived? A faint gleam of admiration lighted up the face of the would-be boilermaker as he stretched out the short sleeve of his threadbare canvas jacket and replied, pointing her out, on the work of the wife. I forget where boilermaking had gone to or where he supposed it had gone to, but he added some resigned information on that head, coupled with an expression of his belief that it was never coming back. The cheery helpfulness of the wife was very remarkable. She did slop work, made pea-jackets. She produced the pea-jacket then in hand and spread it out upon the bed, the only piece of furniture in the room on which to spread it. She showed how much of it she made, and how much was afterwards finished off by the machine. According to her calculation at the moment, deducting what her trimming cost her, she got for making a pea-jacket tenpence halfpenny, and she could make one in something less than two days. "'But you see, it come to her through two hands, and of course it didn't come through the second hand for nothing.' "'Why did it come through the second hand at all?' "'Why, this way. The second hand took the risk of all the given-out work, you see.' If she had money enough to pay the security deposit, call it two pound, she could get the work from the first hand, and so the second would not have to be deducted for. But having no money at all, the second hand come in and took its profit, and so the whole work down to tenpence halfpenny. Having explained all this with great intelligence, even with some little pride, and without a whine or murmur, she folded her work again, sat down by her husband's side at the washing-stool, and resumed her dinner of dry bread. 
Mina's the meal was on the bare board with its old gallipots for cups and what not other sordid makeshifts. Shabby as the woman was in dress, and toning down towards the Boscheswin colour with want of nutriment and washing, there was positively a dignity in her, as the family anchor, just holding the poor shipwrecked boilermaker's bark. When I left the room, the boilermaker's eyes were slowly turned towards her, as if his last hope of ever again seeing that vanished boiler lay in her direction. These people had never applied for parish relief but once, and that was when the husband had met with a disabling accident at his work. Not many doors from here, I went into a room on the first floor. The woman apologised for its being in an untidy mess. The day was Saturday, and she was boiling the children's clothes in a saucepan on the hearth. There was nothing else into which she could have put them. There was no crockery or tinware or tub or bucket. There was an old galley pot or two, and there was a broken bottle or so, and there were some broken boxes for seats. The last small scraping of coals left was raked together in a corner of the floor. There were some rags in an open cupboard, also on the floor. In a corner of the room was a crazy old French bedstead, with a man lying on his back upon it in a ragged pilot jacket and rough oilskin fantail hat. The room was perfectly black. It was difficult to believe at first that it was not purposely coloured black, the walls were so begrimed. As I stood opposite the woman, boiling the children's clothes, she had not even a piece of soap to wash them with, and apologising for her occupation, I could take in all these things without appearing to notice them, and could even correct my inventory. I had missed, at the first glance, some half a pound of bread in the otherwise empty safe, an old red ragged crinoline hanging on the handle of the door by which I had entered, and certain fragments of rusty iron scattered on the floor, which looked like broken tools and a piece of stovepipe. A child stood looking on. On the box nearest to the fire sat two younger children, one a delicate and pretty little creature, whom the other sometimes kissed. This woman, like the last, was woefully shabby, and was degenerating to the Boschesman complexion. But her figure, and the ghost of a certain vivacity about her, and the spectre of a dimple in her cheek, carried my memory strangely back to the old days of the Adelphi Theatre, London, when Mrs. Fitzwilliam was the friend of Victorine. "'May I ask you what your husband is?' "'He's a coal-porter, sir,' with a glance and a sigh towards the bed. "'Is he out of work?' "'Oh, yes, sir, and work's at all times very, very scanty with him, "'and now he's laid up.' "'It's my legs,' said the man upon the bed.' "'I'll unroll them, and immediately began. "'Have you any older children?' "'I have a daughter that does the needlework, "'and I have a son that does what he can. "'She's at her work now, and he's trying for work. "'Do they live here? "'They sleep here. "'They can't afford to pay more rent, so they come here at night. "'The rent is very hard upon us. "'Throws upon us too now, six months a week, "'on account of these new changes in the law, about the rates.' We're a week behind. The landlord's been shaking and rattling at that door frightfully. He says he'll turn us out. I don't know what's to come of it. The man upon the bed ruefully interposed. Here's my legs. The skin's broke besides the swelling. I have had a many kicks working one way and another. He looked at his legs, which were much discoloured and misshapen for a while, and then, appearing to remember that they were not popular with his family, rolled them up again, as if there was something in the nature of maps or plans that were not wanted to be referred to, lay hopelessly down on his back once more, with his fantail hat over his face, and stirred not. 
Do your eldest son and daughter sleep in that cupboard? Yes, replied the woman. With the children? Yes, we have to get together for warmth. We have little to cover us. Have you nothing by you to eat but the piece of bread I see there? Nothing, and we had the rest of the loaf for our breakfast with water. I don't know what's to come of it. Have you no prospect of improvement? If my eldest son owns anything today, he'll bring it home. Then we shall have something to eat tonight, and may be able to do something towards the rent. If not, I don't know what's to come of it. This is a sad state of things. Yes, sir, it's a hard, hard life. Take care of the stairs as you go, sir, they're broken. And good day, sir. These people had a mortal dread of entering the workhouse and received no out-of-door relief. In another room, in still another tenement, I found a very decent woman with five children, the last a baby, and she herself a patient of the parish doctor, to whom, her husband being in the hospital, the union allowed for the support of herself and family four shillings a week and five loaves. I suppose when this man MP and that man MP and the public blessing party lay their heads together in the course of time and come to an equalisation of rating, she may go down to the dance of death to the tune of sixpence more. I could enter no other houses for that one while, for I could not bear the contemplation of the children. Such heart as I had summoned to sustain me against the miseries of the adults failed me when I looked at the children. I saw how young they were, how hungry, how serious and still. I thought of them sick and dying in those lairs. I think of them dead without anguish, but to think of them so suffering and so dying quite unmanned me. Down by the river's bank in Ratcliffe, I was turning upward by a side street, therefore, to regain the railway, when my eyes rested on the inscription across the road, East London Children's Hospital. I could scarcely have seen an inscription better suited to my frame of mind, and I went across and went straight in. I found the children's hospital established in an old sail-loft or storehouse, of the roughest nature and on the simplest means. There were trap-doors in the floors where goods had been hoisted up and down. Heavy feet and heavy weights had started every knot in the well-trodden planking. Inconvenient bulks and beams and awkward staircases perplexed my passage through the wards, but I found it airy, sweet and clean. In its seven-and-thirty beds I saw but little beauty, for starvation in the second or third generation takes a pinched look. But I saw the sufferings both of infancy and childhood tenderly assuaged, I heard the little patients answering to pet, playful names. The light touch of a delicate lady laid bare the wasted sticks of arms for me to pity, and the claw-like little hands, as she did so, twined themselves lovingly around her wedding ring. One baby might there was as pretty as any of Raphael's angels. The tiny head was bandaged for water on the brain, and it was suffering with acute bronchitis too, and made from time to time a plaintive, though not impatient or complaining, little sound. The smooth curve of the cheeks and of the chin was faultless in its condensation of infantine beauty, and the large bright eyes were most lovely. It happened, as I stopped at the foot of the bed, that these eyes rested upon mine with that wistful expression of wondering thoughtfulness which we all know sometimes in very little children. They remained fixed on mine and never turned from me while I stood there. When the utterance of that plaintive sound shook the little form, the gaze still remained unchanged. 
i felt as though the child implored me to tell the story of the little hospital in which it was sheltered to any gentle heart i could address laying my world-worn hand upon the little unmarked clasped hand at the chin i gave it a silent promise that i would do so a gentleman and lady a young husband and wife have bought and fitted up this building for its present noble use and have quietly settled themselves in it as its medical officers and directors both have had considerable practical experience of medicine and surgery he is house surgeon of a great london hospital she is a very earnest student tested by severe examination and also as a nurse of the sick poor during the prevalence of cholera with every qualification to lure them away with youth and accomplishments and tastes and habits that can have no response in any breast near them close begirt by every repulsive circumstance inseparable from such a neighbourhood there they dwell they live in the hospital itself and their rooms are on its first floor sitting at their dinner-table they could hear the cry of one of the children in pain the lady's piano drawing materials books and other such evidences of refinement are as much a part of the rough place as the iron bedsteads of the little patients they are put to shifts for room like passengers on board ship the dispenser of medicines attracted to them not by self-interest but by their own magnetism and that of their cause sleeps in a recess in the dining-room and has his washing apparatus in the sideboard their contented manner of making the best of the things around them i found so pleasantly inseparable from their usefulness their pride in this partition that we put up ourselves or in that partition that we took down or in that other partition that we moved or in the stove that was given us for the waiting-room or in our nightly conversion of the little consulting-room into a smoking-room their admiration of the situation if we could only get rid of its one objectionable incident the coal-yard at the back our hospital carriage presented by a friend and very useful that was my presentation to a perambulator for which a coach-house had been discovered in a corner downstairs just large enough to hold it coloured prints in all stages of preparation for being added to those already decorating the wards were plentiful a charming wooden phenomenon of a bird with an impossible top-knot who ducked his head when you set a counterweight going had been inaugurated as a public statue that very morning and trotting about among the beds on familiar terms with all the patients was a comical mongrel dog called poodles this comical dog quite a tonic in himself was found characteristically starving at the door of the institution and was taken in and fed and has lived here ever since an admirer of his mental endowments has presented him with a collar bearing the legend judge not poodles by external appearances he was merrily wagging his tail on a boy's pillow when he made this modest appeal to me when this hospital was first opened in january of the present year the people could not possibly conceive but that somebody paid for the services rendered there and were disposed to claim them as a right and to find fault if out of temper they soon came to understand the case better and have much increased in gratitude the mothers of the patients avail themselves very freely of the visiting rules the fathers often on sundays there is an unreasonable but still i think touching and intelligible tendency in the parents to take a child away to its wretched home if on the point of death one boy who had been thus carried off on a rainy night when in a violent state of inflammation and who had been afterwards brought back had been recovered with exceeding difficulty but he was a jolly boy with a specially strong interest in his dinner when i saw him 
Insufficient food and unwholesome living are the main causes of disease among these small patients. So nourishment, cleanliness and ventilation are the main remedies. Discharged patients are looked after and invited to come and dine now and then. So are certain famishing creatures who are never patients. Both the lady and the gentleman are well acquainted not only with the histories of the patients and their families, but with the characters and circumstances of great numbers of their neighbours. Of these they keep a register. It is their common experience that people, sinking down by inches into deeper and deeper poverty, will conceal it, even from them if possible, unto the very last extremity. The nurses of this hospital are all young, ranging, say, from nineteen to four-and-twenty. They have, even within these narrow limits, what many well-endowed hospitals would not give them, a comfortable room of their own in which to take their meals. It is a beautiful truth that interest in the children and sympathy with their sorrows bind these young women to their places far more strongly than any other consideration could. The best skilled of the nurses came originally from a kindred neighbourhood almost as poor, and she knew how much the work was needed. She is a fair dressmaker. The hospital cannot pay her as many pounds in the year as there are months in it and one day the lady regarded it as a duty to speak to her about her improving her prospects and following her trade. No, she said, she could never be so useful or so happy elsewhere any more. She must stay among the children. And she stays. One of the nurses, as I passed her, was washing a baby boy. Liking her pleasant face, I stopped to speak to her charge, a common, bullet-headed, frowning charge enough, laying hold of his own nose with a slippery grasp, and staring very solemnly out of a blanket. The melting of the pleasant face into delighted smiles, as this young gentleman gave an unexpected kick and laughed at me, was almost worth my previous pain. An affecting play was acted in Paris years ago called The Children's Doctor. As I parted from my children's doctor, now in question, I saw, in his easy black necktie, in his loose-buttoned black frock-coat, in his pensive face, in the flow of his dark hair, in his eyelashes, in the very turn of his moustache, the exact realisation of the Paris artist's ideal as it was presented on the stage. But no romancer that I know of has had the boldness to prefigure the life and home of this young husband and young wife in the children's hospital in the east of London. I came away from Radcliffe by the Stepney railway station to the terminus at Fenchurch Street, Anyone who will reverse that route may retrace my steps. End of chapter 32